Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about one of those subjects that has been requested by so many people, we a, cannot name them all, a bazillion times, lots of times, and that is Boudicca. Boudicca was a first century queen of the Iceni, which is a tribe that lived in what's now East Anglia. She either staged a successful rebellion against the Romans or a massacre, depending on who's doing the talking. And now she's become one of the most famous figures from that era of British history. And it's not just because of this David and Goliath-esque nature of the whole story. There were definitely other tribal leaders elsewhere in Britain whose fight against the Romans was a lot more sustained and really more effective when you look at the long-term consequences. But Boudicca really gets top billing because she was a woman, which, in the eyes of the Romans, really made her something to talk about. A lot of the surviving accounts of Boudicca were written by Roman historians after the fact. One was Tacitus, who was writing within 60 years of her death, and the other was Cassius Dio, who wrote about a 100 years after the fact. The Britons themselves did not leave a lot of written records, so pretty much all of our written accounts of her are colored with the Roman idea, number one, that women weren't fit to govern, and number two, that the Britons were an unorganized horde of filthy barbarians. But thanks to archaeological discoveries within the last century, now we have a lot more complete picture of her and of what happened than we ever did before. So for background, Boudicca is from the Celtic word Buddha, which means victory. And we're not sure if that's a name or a title, but it's definitely not Bodicea, which you might have learned in school if you were going at the times that Tracy and I were. Yeah, th- th- there was a... a uh, an error in in a recopying of a historical text a long time ago that transformed it repopulated itself through many many texts yes so definitely bodicea if you've heard it said that way or written that way that's not the way here's a description of her by dio in stature she was very tall in appearance most terrifying in the glance of her eye most fierce and her voice was harsh a great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colors, over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. This was her invariable attire. And this description is pretty much in line with how she's often depicted. A powerful, screaming warrior woman with long red hair who is really bent on taking you down and ready to do it. We don't, however, actually know what color her hair really was. The red could have been an embellishment tied to all of those prejudices about red-haired people, and those have been around since antiquity. And we don't have a ton of evidence to suggest that she was particularly tall. That's a description that went along with a lot of Britons, even though the skeletons that exist suggest otherwise. But it may just be part of the myth of her being this fierce, incredible creature. So... Boudicca was queen of the Iceni, and as we said before, this was a tribe that lived in what's now East Anglia. She was born to a royal family around the year 25, and she married a man named uh, Prostatagus. He was definitely from the Iceni tribe, and it's not totally clear whether she was as well or whether she became part of the tribe through her marriage to him. They had two daughters and no sons. 
the Iceni were subsistence farmers, uh, potters and metal workers, and they also raised horses. They probably lived in roundhouses with thatched roofs without a lot of fortification. They were also one of the tribes that offered to join an alliance with Caesar during his unsuccessful attempts to evade, invade Britannia in 55 and 54 BCE. After Caesar left Britannia, there wasn't really a lot of Roman, or really any at all, Roman activity for almost a 100 years. But then Rome invaded Britain again in the year 43 under Emperor Claudius. Unlike Caesar, Claudius's army successfully fought off the guerrilla resistance of the tribes in the area, and they built fortresses and stationed troops there. The Roman presence grew through much of eastern Britannia after Claudius's invasion. The tribes were actually divided over whether they were in favor of the Romans' presence or against it. There wasn't really one collective, unified people known as, quote, the Britons. Uh, they were scattered tribes with their own leadership, and they had their own series of struggles amongst themselves. The Catuvelauni, for example, were Iceni's neighbors to the south, and they had an ongoing guerrilla campaign against the Romans' expansion. The Iceni, though, uh, made an alliance with the Romans. But four years later, the new Roman governor, Astorius, who did not really trust the Britons, passed a law that made it illegal for the tribes to have weapons other than ones that they needed for hunting. This did not go over well, and the Iceni staged a rebellion. Astorius put down the rebellion and removed their leader, Antidios, from power and made Boudicca's husband, Prasitagus, a client king. And as a client king, he got to keep control of his tribe and the tribe got to keep some level of autonomy in managing its own affairs. But they had to stay loyal to Rome and pay taxes. In this arrangement, the Iceni got, got protection both from Rome and from the other tribes as part of the deal. But it came with a cost. The taxation was pretty huge. As time went on, the tax costs to the Iceni got higher and higher. The Romans would also collect part of the harvest and store it elsewhere and then sell it back to the Iceni, who had to both pay for the goods and for their transport back to them. So tensions started to grow a bit as things got financially harder and harder. Yeah, not such a good deal after all. Well, uh, maybe. <laughs> You're not having to fight off your neighbors constantly. That's true. Emperor Claudius, of course, was poisoned in the year 54, and Nero rose to power. Uh, Nero ordered a temple to Claudius to be built in Camulodunum, which was the Roman capital in Britain. There, the British chiefs would be required to worship once a year, and they had to pay for the temple as well. This, as you can imagine, was not a popular move. Prasitagus's client-king relationship with Rome made things tricky after he died in the year 60. He was considered to be a Roman citizen, and he had taken the step of selecting heirs for his kingdom, which was a pretty Roman idea. He bequeathed half of his kingdom to Nero and the rest to his wife and daughters. This was a completely unprecedented arrangement, both in British custom and in Roman law. Among the Britons, women had a higher social standing than they did in Rome. It really wasn't unheard of for women to inherit property or to be next in a line of succession. But because of his client-king status, the Iceni kingdom really belonged to Rome and not to Prasitagus. In Rome's eyes, this, this land and kingdom that he had bequeathed was not actually his to give away. It would really belong to Rome until Rome selected a new client king to take his place. So, because they held this belief, Rome took possession of his entire kingdom. 
uh, a Roman official arrived and took inventory of Boudicca's estate because it was now considered Roman property. After her husband's death, the Romans also shamed Boudicca and her family. The exact method kind of varies in the telling. Tacitus writes that Boudicca was flogged and her daughters were raped. But Dio writes that it was about money. Roman leaders had loaned her husband money, uh, whether he really wanted to borrow money or not, and then showed up at her home demanding that she immediately repay it with interest. At about this time, the Roman governor, Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, was away in Mona, which is now considered Anglesey, uh, which is a Druid island off the coast of Wales. His goal was to eliminate the Druid religion. And this was accomplished or um, pursued, among other ways, by cutting down the Druid grove, slaughtering Druids, and placing a garrison on the island. The Iceni and other tribes heard about this and were outraged. And Boudicca was, thanks to the Romans' treatment of her husband's estate and of her family, pretty much primed to fight back against them. So, really, considering all the other stuff that had gone before, the Romans' actions at Mona were the last straw for both Boudicca and the Iceni. So, she amassed an army, which reportedly started with about 20,000 Britons. Those 20,000 included children and elderly people. It was basically all people Come on, let's fight the Romans. Boudicca and her army laid waste to the Roman capital of Britain, Camulodunum, which is now Colchester, and destroyed parts of Londonium, which is now London, and Verulamium, which is now St. Albans. They started in Camulodunum, which was an existing town that had become heavily Romanized. It had gone from being a collection of thatched-roofed cottages to having a marketplace, a 3,000-seat theater, and the temple to Claudius that we mentioned earlier, which was in the process of being built. Both Tacitus and Dio write about strange happenings leading up to Boudicca's attack on Camulodunum, including a statue falling over and women making frantic prophecies of impending doom. It's possible that this was a deliberate effort on the part of Boudicca's army to sow fear and superstition in advance of their attack. Although it had been built up really significantly under Roman influence, Camulodunum didn't really have any defenses. The town sent to Londonium for assistance. Londonium only sent 200 men as reinforcements, either because they didn't take this army of Britons seriously or because they didn't really have men to spare. Boudicca's army went house to house for about two days, smashing, looting, and killing. Survivors took refuge in the temple in progress, which the forces surrounded and demolished and killed everyone inside. In the end, Camulodunum was entirely destroyed. Boudicca's forces burned it to the ground, and the fire was so hot that some of the clay walls in the archaeological record uh, look like they've been fired in a kiln like pottery. I mean, there are pottery shards as well, but these clay walls had also been fired by the heat. It became pottery. Uh, according to written accounts, the death toll there was approximately 10,000 people. But the archaeological record is less clear on this account. There is plenty of charred earth, and there are, as we mentioned, shards of pottery. But there really aren't that many bones, uh, suggesting that many actually managed to flee before Boudicca's army got there. Quintus Petilius Serialis Cesius Rufus, who was the commander of the Ninth Legion, heard about what was going on and headed for Camulodunum with 2,000 legionaries and 500 cavalry. Boudicca, whose army just kept growing and gaining new members as she moved across the countryside, ambushed the infantry and wiped them out. 
The cavalry survived and retreated. Then, Governor Suetonus heard of the rebellion and came back from Mona. He rode ahead of his men and got to Londonium before Boudicca's army did. He decided that it would be impossible to defend, especially since Boudicca was going to get there before the rest of his men could. The city was unwalled and had few defensive vantage points, so he ordered for the city to be completely evacuated. When Boudicca arrived, she and her force slaughtered everyone who remained. Some of the writings about this particular slaughter are really gory, and they involve sexual mutilation of the bodies. But, like we saw in Camula Dunham, we don't have a lot of bodies or bones in the archaeological evidence here. Just a really thick layer of char. The layer in the archaeological record is full of burned daub from buildings and remnants of molten glass. It's not as citywide as the Camulodunum burn, uh, and there aren't many objects other than building debris. So people probably picked up as much as they could carry when they evacuated, or they somehow survived and returned and cleaned up. Boudicca and her army then turned northwest to Verulamium, which, hearing of their approach, did a pretty smart job of emptying. The evacuation was pretty thorough, so by the time Boudicca's force got there to sack and burn, most of it was abandoned. So they sacked it and burned it, but didn't do a lot of murdering that time around. There aren't lots of stories of gore. No, that was a lot more just burning things down. And meanwhile, Suetonius gathered an army of about 10,000 men, including some of the force he had used at Mona and some reinforcements from other outposts. It's not entirely clear where they fought or how big Boudicca's army was at this point. Uh, but according to Dio, she had more than 200,000 fighters, including the elderly people and children still. Uh, but modern historians agree that that number is probably pretty inflated. Uh, in all likelihood, her force did outnumber the Romans considerably, but they also weren't a trained army. So what they had in numbers, they probably lacked in skill. So exactly where this last battle took place is the subject of a lot of debate. Uh, One of those things where they compare the written descriptions to the landscape and where they would have been moving. Um, The Romans chose a spot to fight that gave them huge advantages. The Britons were going to have to move through a large field where they would be completely exposed and then into a gorge where they'd basically hit a bottleneck. But so far, uh, while trying to match this description to the local area, they have not found a definite X marks the spot kind of certainty. Like the descriptions don't match up with the topography of anywhere yet? Yeah, there, there's, there are several contenders, and none of them is in the definite forefront. Allegedly, though, Boudicca arrived at the battlefield with her daughters in a chariot, and Romans' wives came out to watch the fighting. Tacitus and Dio both record speeches she allegedly delivered, and those speeches don't particularly agree with each other, uh, and they're pretty heavily Roman in their sensibility. Yeah, there there is a lot of, I'm just a woman, and I know that you're not used to fighting for a woman, but I'm a woman, and you're going to fight for me, and it... Which might not have really been her mindset. <laughs> right. It, the If you read these, and you can find them easily online, if you read them, it do, does definitely sound like someone describing something for readers of their own culture right? about a different culture that is not theirs. <laughs> um, so probably she did say something, but not the things that are written down. This battle went overwhelmingly in the Romans' favor. According to Tacitus, the Romans killed about 80,000 Britons while suffering only 400 or so casualties. 
Then when the Britons tried to retreat, they found their way blocked by the chariots that had brought out the Romans' wives, which drove up the death toll. Boudicca herself escaped, but she died shortly thereafter, and her cause of death remains unclear. It may have been suicide by poison, which is how Tacitus tells the story, uh, or it may also have been shock from an injury in the battle. Dio says that she actually fell ill. Many, but not most, of the Roman deaths during Boudicca's uprising were civilians. According to Tacitus, 70,000 civilians died. The small remaining community of Iceni were absorbed under Roman control, and Rome set about rebuilding and also quelling any further unrest. The rebuilt Camulodunum was much more defensible, as were the new Roman settlements elsewhere. Londonium was rebuilt as well, and eventually, of course, became a much bigger and more important city uh, as we know it today. Verulamium was much slower to rebuild, but once rebuilding started, it was definitely in the Roman fashion and not uh, in the style of the Britons. And Rome gradually moved into more and more of Britain and continued to do so right up until the time when the empire fell. This is one of those cases where they learned from the experience of having been essentially routed by a, an army of various assorted people from around the countryside uh, and in the rebuilding took many steps to make sure that things would be better. But that did better not defended. happen again. Yes, in the future. So yes, that is the story of Boudicca. I actually did find uh, one book that had some discussion in it about whether she was a real person at all, or whether this is sort of a, a story that conveniently has a, a person that we don't really know existed. And the general consensus was, yeah, we think she's a real person. Don't know if her name was really Boudicca or not. So it's sort of a title, maybe. Right. Sort of like calling someone Victoria, who was not actually named Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that not a lot of definite... There's, It's nebulous still. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nebulous. Some of the particulars of this are very nebulous. Like, uh, did lots of people survive, or were they maybe buried elsewhere? Did people come back and get all their stuff, or had they taken it all away before the looting and sacking happened? So the records we have still leave a lot of questions unanswered. Yes, and uh, considering how long ago this happened, that is not super surprising. No. And considering how uh, there was not a lot of written record from, like, from the Britons, Mm -hmm. um, pretty much the people who were literate in that culture at the time were the Druids, and that was not really focused on, like, keeping daily history of what was going on. We definitely have a a way more one-sided account. Do you also have a spot of listener mail for us? I do, and I have two different pieces of listener mail. Spots, plural. Yes. Uh, They are both about our episodes on the Irish potato famine, and they have some similar themes. I want to read both of them. Uh, The first came to our inbox from Shannon. Shannon says, thank you so much for your podcasts on the Irish potato famine. It was one of the few times I've heard the story uh, in such depth outside of Erin. A few things I'd like to share with you. One, in Dublin, you can hear stories of how women would fake being prostitutes to be arrested and sent to jail to get food. There is a prison that's now a museum, and the tour guide I had was of the opinion that it was an economic genocide since there was double the amount of food being grown in Ireland that was needed to feed everyone, but it was still being taxed out of the country. Two, my great-grandmother was a child of Irish immigrants who went to Liverpool. My grandmother would always say, and she says this in Irish, and I'm not going to try, I'm afraid I would mangle it. 
Uh, she had a phrase she would say when she ran errands, which means off to sell a chair, which was how they would pay for food. By the way, they came over due to the rebellion. Would love this as a podcast. Many Irish names were Americanized. That's point three. My great-grandfather, when arriving in Boston, changed his last name from O'Leary to Leary, thinking it would help him get a job. When it didn't, he just never changed it back. And my grandfather didn't know that his last name wasn't Leary until he was drafted into the Army. And number four, the workhouses continued. Many became, quote, Magdalene laundries and are a massive black mark on the Irish government for not stopping them after becoming independent. Also, a great podcast topic. So that was from Shannon. Our other note is from also someone named Shannon, but it's from Facebook. (laughs) This, Shannon says, just finished listening to your Irish famine episode. I'm an American expat now living in Dublin, Ireland. With a master's degree in Irish history, I'm very familiar with the famine. I want to congratulate on a very good podcast about a very complicated issue. One interesting story concerning the famine. In the latter years of the famine, the jails throughout Ireland were extremely overcrowded. There were two very good reasons for this. First, a vagrancy law was passed so people who begged could be put in jail. Second, people were so desperate for food that they would purposefully commit crimes to be put in jail because once there, they would get two meals a day. For example, Kilmainham Jail in Dublin had over 9,000 prisoners during 1850 in a jail that had less than 200 cells. Yeah. Disease was rampant in the jail, but it was better than being on the outside. Thanks again for the podcast. I hope to hear more about Irish history in the future. So thank you, Shannon and Shannon. We really uh, did not get into... That's what It was one of those stories that just kept getting more and more awful. Well, and it, there are a lot of layers to it. Many, many awful layers. And one of the layers that we did not get into was uh, the layer of, of people deliberately committing crimes just in order to get a meal or pretending to commit crimes in order to get a meal. There was a lot of... People went to great lengths just to try to get food because there was not really another option for getting food. Desperate times, desperate measures. Extremely so. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at History. You can find our Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest. For a little more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and search for the word Nero, and you will find the article, Did Nero Really Fiddle While Rome Burned? You can learn all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.